This past week, I went to Eastern Mennonite High School to talk in a class about hard things in the Bible. One of the things that I named as a challenge for me was patriarchy. The teacher asked me to define what that meant. I stumbled through an answer that was something like this. In the biblical times, men were seen as more important than women. Society was biased towards and elevated men, as well as telling the story from the male's perspective. Women are not included and often go unnamed. As we return to the start of the Bible with this new school year and with the narrative lectionary cycle beginning again, we are looking at the story of Abraham. One of the most important in a long line of patriarchs or of men who are influential in the biblical story. God had started off trying to work with all of creation and all people. But that dream or project went off the rails pretty quickly. Then God decides to work with one man, Abraham, and one family, Abraham's family, and his descendants through the generations who will become the people of Israel. Genesis tells the story of our biblical ancestral heroes. But today's story doesn't skip over some unnamed woman who is voiceless. In this story, we see, hear, and some of the narrative is affected by Sarah, Abraham's wife. God had pro has promised Abraham that he will be the father of a nation. Yet, there is one huge problem. Sarah and Abraham are childless. This was a further slap in the face because Genesis tells of a world in which children were a woman's status and in which childlessness was regarded as a virtual sign of divine disfavor. To add insult to injury, this infertility was always perceived as the woman's fault. Maybe, am I pointing at the right place? Eh, nope, sorry. <laughs> the woman's Bible commentary notes that Gen in Genesis that matriarchs have recurring narrative patterns. They were are barren and then they become mothers. Virtually no hero worth his salt in Genesis is born under circumstances that are ordinary for his mother. 
It is the unusual and often initially infertile women who have special births. It is their sons who count in the ongoing tradition. These women mother nations and receive special communications about the child to be born. They often engineer the births, thereby showing considerable power in matters related to fertility and sexuality. Abraham and Sarah are getting old, and they still have no child. By older, we mean close to 100. Why is God waiting to deliver on the promise of children? Enter three strangers. Abraham rushes to greet them and offer hospitality. It was the middle of the day in the desert, so it would have been really hot. Hospitality was the cultural default in this kind of situation, but Abraham greets them, offers them food, and then hurries off, running and rushing to get others into action and prepare this food. Once these guests settled under the trees with the food before them, the scene slows as they ask a question. Where is your wife, Sarah? Sarah's ears perk up from where she is listening in the tent. These are no ordinary men as they deliver a message that within the next year, Sarah will have a baby. Now, I know we get squeamish talking about bodies and women's reproductive systems in church, but Sarah was old. In today's standards, advanced maternal age, which was formerly called geriatric pregnancy, were for those who were 35 years or older at their estimated delivery. The text says Sarah was old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. She had gone through menopause, no periods. I would have laughed too if a stranger had said, no worries, you are going to have a baby next year. It was literally humanly impossible. And Sarah is not the only one who laughs at this impossibility. Just one chapter earlier, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Can Sarah, who is a 90 year old, bear a child? Are they really asking, can God be trusted? 
Walter Brueggemann states, faith is not easy. It calls for a persistence which is against common sense. It calls for believing in a gift from God which none of the present data can substantiate. Brueggemann goes on, faith is not a reasonable act which fits into the normal scheme of life and perceptions. The promise of the gospel is not a conventional piece of wisdom that is easily accommodated to everything else. Embrace of this radical gospel requires shattering and discontinuity. Abraham and Sarah have by this time become accustomed to their barrenness. They are resigned to their closed future. They have accepted that hopelessness as normal. We might have the same question that Abraham and Sarah are left with as the scene closes. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Are there some things that are beyond God's capacity? My knee-jerk reaction is to throw in all the times that bad things have happened to good people. When faithful people pray and it seems like God does not hear, does not show up, and does not act. I sometimes long for a miracle, but am not sure I see them happening often. But God works in God's own time and at God's will, not ours. The Mark text has Jesus answering this question that the three strangers asked. Jesus looked at the disciples and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. This possibility of God is not driven by our desires and wishes, but by what God has promised. Brueggemann continues, not everything is promised. What is possible is characterized only as everything promised by God. That is only what corresponds to God's good purposes is possible. God has promised a future in a new community, but not everything that we would seek. What God will not or cannot do is circumvented, it is to circumvent the reality of suffering, hurt, and the cross. Thus, our text does not permit a casual triumphalism that simply believes everything is possible. Because of the character of God, everything is possible for the one who stays through the dark night of barrenness with God. 
For Abraham and Sarah, there is no simple, painless route to an heir. End quote. No wonder Sarah was scared when God promised this impossibly possible thing for her future. Maybe we, like Abraham and Sarah, take the promise into our own hands, forcing it, helping God along a little bit. When a baby didn't come, they forced Hagar into the middle of things, making the lives of all those involved more complicated and completely unbearable at points. It amazes me how often the Bible is waiting for a birth. We have whole seasons of the liturgical year that focus on this, waiting for God to act, for new life to show up, for the promise of a baby to be born. We want this to be easy, reliable, and straightforward, but that is rarely how God shows up. Again from Brueggemann, the problem of expressing this finely balanced gospel faithfully is the key problem of an incarnational faith. Life comes only through the promise. The promise comes only through the body of the hopeless ones. Like the birth of Jesus, Isaac's birth is announced by angels, but the birth is not apart from the tired, aged reality of Abraham and Sarah. The promise has fleshy fulfillment. And with that, we jump to chapter 21, which starts off saying in two different ways, God did what God said that God would do. God did the thing that God had promised. Sarah gets pregnant and gives birth to a baby boy who is named Isaac. Isaac means laughter. This impossible surprise yet promised birth brings laughter and joy instead of disbelief. Instead of feeling shame around her laughter at the shock of hearing that she would give birth at the age of 90, Sarah names her child Isaac to show her unexpected joy. To basically say to every person who meets him to have laughter and joy. Sarah says, God has brought me laughter, has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. A son comes from the couple who is as good as dead. There was in them no reason for hope. 
Where are we hopeless and waiting for God's call and promise? Can we rush to welcome God who promises and then disturbs us by how God follows God's promises? Do we keep welcoming a God who may bring a message that makes us laugh in discomfort at how God may turn our world upside down by showing up surprisingly? Can we wait on God's time in our lives? We ponder this as we join together in a confession. Gracious God, you reached into Abraham and Sarah's lives and asked them to dream the impossible dream that you would transform what appeared to have been a barren and lifeless situation into one overflowing with promise and hope. And through faith in you, they believed your promises. Forgive us, O oh God, if we never get beyond thinking of your call on our lives as an impossible dream or even as an unwelcome interruption. Faithful God, the Apostle Paul emphasizes Abraham's complete trust and faith in your promises and how he grew even stronger in faith fully convinced of your ability to fulfill what had been promised. Forgive us, O oh God, when we find it hard even to hear your promises above commercial assurances of transformation, promises tempting us to trust the newest and trendiest products to realize our dreams. Merciful God, Jesus revealed the great depth of your love in his determination to defeat evil, even when this meant giving up his own life. Forgive us, O oh God, when we allow the power of evil to flourish, because we fear that taking up one's cross would be just too costly an exercise. Gracious and loving God, Forgive our lack of trust in you. Have mercy on us and forgive us. Help us when we hesitate and strengthen us when we are weak. Breathe your spirit afresh into our hearts and minds, our lives, so that we have the courage to follow Jesus wherever he takes us. Amen.